John chapter 18, reading from verse 1 to verse 27. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book, the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and, they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have also taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews came together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Well, before we consider this passage together, let's just ask again for God's help. Lord, as we come to these ancient words, ever true, we pray that they would change us. We want to come with open hearts, 
So we just pray that you would remove the veil of blindness, of unbelief, of self-centeredness, so that we might trace your pathway, Lord Jesus, of lowliness and grace, and so be changed. For we ask it, our Father, in the powerful name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, amen. Well, we're continuing in our study of John's gospel, and this 18th chapter starts a new section in the gospel. In the previous section, chapters 13 to 17, we have what is sometimes referred to as the upper room discourse. It's the section of John's gospel where Jesus, having concluded his public ministry, withdraws from the crowd, crowds and focuses in on his disciples, preparing them for what lies ahead. And I want to just review that section very briefly as a context for considering this 18th chapter. So that section of Scripture starts in chapter 13 with Jesus stooping down, and it ends in chapter 17 with Jesus looking up. In 13, with his eyes upon the disciples, he stoops down, as you recall, and washes their feet. And then he continues to wash their feet with the water of the word through chapters 14, 15, and 16. And then in chapter 17, he looks up to the Father and intercedes for him. As J.G. Bella puts it, he fills up the whole distance from the bright throne of God to our defiled feet. So when you think of that section of Scripture, when you think of this upper room discourse from chapters 13 to 17, I want you to picture this. I want you to picture Jesus looking up to the Father with his hand upon the disciples, reaching up and connecting the disciples to the Father, connecting them in the most intimate of relationships and saying, this is is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is, by the way, what eternal life is. It's not just unending life, right? But it's an abundant life that is found in knowing the Father. And that's what Jesus had done for them. He had revealed the Father to them. Not just in chapters 13 to 17, but through the past three and a half years in his public ministry. And that's why at the end of the 17th chapter it says, I have made made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So the Lord's earthly ministry revealed the Father to the disciples, and the Holy Spirit continues that ministry, and it is through that ministry that they and we lay hold of eternal, abundant life. And to the degree that we lay hold of it, we are, an, we are able to endure trial and conflict. That's why it's so important that that's the setting of our chapter here, because in chapter 18, the conflict that he has been preparing them for begins to unfold, and it reveals just how prepared they were. 
And the crisis that starts to unfold in chapter 18 finds three men in various stages of preparedness. This is what crises do, isn't it? They reveal where we are. When the sky is blue and the grass is green, the state of my soul can remain undetected. But it's in the crucible that my true state of soul and yours is revealed. So in our passage, we're not only going to examine the lives of three men and see, um, we're going to examine the lives of three men and see in one of them the result of not knowing the Father, and in in another the result of knowing the Father, yet knowing him imperfectly, and in another the results of knowing the Father intimately. Now, these three men are Judas, Peter, and our Lord. Judas, who did not know the Father, Simon Peter, who knew the Father, yet imperfectly, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew the Father intimately. And as we consider these three men, we'll be forced to consider how prepared we are as a church for the conflict that lies ahead of us. For one thing is quite sure that conflict is coming. We've already had a taste of it. But let's remember that what prepares the soul for conflict is knowing the Father and Jesus Christ whom he sent. For this is eternal, abundant life, and it is here that we find an anchor for our souls even in the most devastating of circumstances. So let's start with the first of those three men. Let's start with Judas. In the first verse of our chapter, we're given their location, the location of this drama, which I believe is great significance. We read in the first verse, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, there was another crossing of the brook Kidron that we considered not so long ago, if you recall in our study of 2 Samuel. You'll recall the story. David's son Absalom had conspired against David and turned the hearts of the people away from David, and David is forced to flee for his life, he and those that are faithful to him. And in 2 Samuel 15, 23, we read, And all the land wept aloud, and all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And then verse 30, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. I think this has got to be one of the saddest scenes In the whole of the Old Testament, David learns that his own son has turned against him. And David and those that are loyal to him have to flee the city. And as they reach the outskirts of the city, David pauses and looks back. As the people pass over the brook Kidron, weeping as they go, and it's here that it becomes known to David that not only has Absalom conspired against him, but his own close friend and confidant, Ahithophel. And this is particularly grievous to David, and I believe he expresses that grief for us in Psalm 55, where we read David saying, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, 
then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Now, I want you to notice that this took place in the very same location where we find Jesus with his disciples at the beginning of this passage. And in the second verse, we read, And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this. As David was enduring this extreme test of faith, how would it have affected David as he crossed the Kidron Valley to know that some 1,000 years later, he would have a son who would walk in the very same place and be betrayed in the very same place and be put to death in the very same place and rise to establish the everlasting kingdom that God had promised to David. How would that have affected David to know that? I want to say a word to those here this morning that are living in the backwash of betrayal. And I will not dishonor your pain with platitudes because I don't suppose that there is any pain that cuts quite so deeply. But I will say that the God who saw David as he wept chose to walk where David walked and chose a disciple that would cause him to feel what David felt. And why did he do it? He did it so that he could fully understand what you are feeling and weep with you in your pain. And he invites you to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. So David's counselor and friend Ahithophel is a type of Judas. Ahithophel was part of David's inner circle. He was one of David's most trusted advisors. But it seems that Ahithophel harbored a hidden disdain for David. Though he ate at his table and counseled him in war and played the part of a close friend, he inwardly despised David, and when the opportunity presented itself, he betrayed him. Was it David's sin with Bathsheba? After all, Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. Or was it ambition and the desire for greater prominence under Absalom? We don't know. What we do know is that his true heart for David could not be hid. And Absalom was but the catalyst to reveal it. And you know, if you don't truly know the Father, it will only be a matter of time before you too betray the Lord. We'll see this next week in Pilate. Pilate had no desire to kill Jesus. You say, I would never betray the Lord. Pilate had no desire to kill Jesus. Jesus was no threat to Rome. But when friendship with Caesar was put on the table, condemning Jesus to death, the death of crucifixion was a price that Pilate was willing to pay. And I suspect the same was true of Judas. Judas didn't want to see Jesus crucified by the Romans. He just loved money. No doubt he thought Jesus would escape their clutches 
as he had done so many times before, but the bottom line was that he loved money more than the treasure of knowing the Father. And in the end, he finds himself leading a band of officers and soldiers to take Jesus to his execution. We read in verse 6 that Judas stood with them when they came to apprehend Jesus. What a solemn thing. He stood with them against Jesus, and when Jesus said, I am he, Judas fell to the ground with them. And shortly after, he fell to his death as he recognized the role that he had played in crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Why? Because he did not know the Father whom the Lord Jesus had sought to reveal to him, and he placed a higher value on money. Could there be... Could there be a Judas in this room this morning? You may say you would never betray the Lord, but if you value anything above him, I mean anything, whether it be friendships or power as Pilate did or money as Judas did, you can and you will. Well, we've talked about Judas who was unprepared because he did not know the Father. Now let's talk about Peter who knew the Father but imperfectly. Jesus says in verse 8 to the mob who had come to arrest him, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Now, what is meant by lost none? It's actually quoted from the previous chapter, the 17th chapter, verse 12, where Jesus, in his prayer to the Father for the disciples, says, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. So if you take that verse, lost here seems to indicate being eternally lost, like Judas was. This was Judas' condition. Now, the reason that none of the other disciples were lost in this sense is because the Lord preserved them. The Lord preserved them. Now, I want to make a careful distinction here between Judas and Peter because while neither of them endured through this trial, there is a significant difference. Though Judas for three years looked the part, he did not know the Father. He did not have eternal life, and his betrayal was evidence of this, and it was final. In other words, Judas wasn't lost because he didn't persevere. He didn't persevere because he was lost. That's very important. I'm going to say that again. Judas wasn't lost because he didn't persevere. He didn't persevere because... He was lost. As Spurgeon said, and I quote, final perseverance is the necessary evidence of genuine conversion. Peter's denial, on the other hand, while it was a lapse in faith, it was not final. Satan had desired to have him, but Jesus would not allow it and prayed for him that his faith would not fail, and later Jesus restored him. The mark of a true believer is that they do persevere, Not in their own strength, but because they are kept by the power of God. And even though they may fail, as Peter did, the Lord will not let them ultimately fail because they are his eternally. We sometimes refer to that as the perseverance of the saints. And Peter came to understand this later 
And in his first epistle, writing to saints that were going through, that were facing a time of severe persecution, and possibly afraid that they would not be able to hold up under persecution, he refers to them as, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. Again, Spurgeon put it this way. The saints prove their conversions by their perseverance. The saints prove their conversion by their perseverance, and that perseverance comes from a continual supply of divine grace to their souls. Close quote. So again, the reason that none of the other disciples were ultimately lost is because the Lord preserves, preserves his own. And one of the ways... One of the ways that the Lord preserves his own is by keeping them from temptations that they are unable to bear. Now, back to our passage. When Jesus said, let these go their way that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. I take it that the Lord knew that the disciples were unable to withstand this particular temptation at this particular time time, and so he delivers them from it. And later, when he's questioned about his disciples and his doctrine, he declines to answer any of their questions. He would not allow his disciples to be drawn into it. He preserved them. Now, the Lord does not allow his own to be drawn into a temptation through which they cannot endure. He preserves them from it. How many of us have sat there wringing our hands, conjuring up in our mind this terrible thing that could happen to us and how we would be unable to endure? The Lord preserves his own. That should comfort us and humble us. Comfort us that we do not need to dread a trial that will overwhelm us. There is no trial, no test that we will ever be called to endure that the Lord will not give us the strength to endure. That's what we have in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but will also with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So that should comfort us. But it should humble us to realize that the only reason that we have not fallen in some area is because the Lord preserved us from the temptation. And the only reason that we have endured in other temptations is because the Lord has sustained us. There's no room for boasting here. There is no room for boasting. There is no room for pride. Peter had boasted that though all the other disciples may forsake Jesus, he would not. But he had never faced that temptation before. And when a trial hits, you want to be found humbly on your knees, not boasting in your own strength, not boasting in your own steadfastness. You cannot walk the path of faith in the power of the flesh. You can start in the power of the flesh, but you will never be able to finish. And when Peter lashed out with his sword against the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear, he engaged in a fight that he could not win. And that singular action set off a chain of events that resulted in Peter denying the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times. I want to explain to you why I say that. First of all, while Peter's action appeared loyal and courageous, it was motivated by a desire to replace God's plan with his plan. 
Peter did not have God's perspective on what was happening. And as a result, his actions were were not only in opposition to the mob, they were actually in opposition to the mind and the plan of God. Verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Now, this was not the first time that Peter had tried to replace God's plan with his own. In Matthew 16, when Jesus had begun to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the Jews and be killed and rise again, Peter had taken him aside and said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This noble and good man had a problem. And that problem was that he thought he had a better plan than God's plan. It's pride, brothers and sisters, to think that you, or, for, or to think that I, know better than God. And pride to engage in a fight that has, he has not called us into or equipped us for. A proud and an impetuous spirit is always dangerous. But it is particularly dangerous when it is found in a person of natural courage and ability like Peter. For they get themselves further out on a limb than their more reserved counterpart. And when, they, when that limb breaks, they fall, and they fall hard, and they often fall publicly. So the first step in Peter's fall was thinking that he knew better than God. And setting out to achieve his plan in the power of Of the flesh. But Peter hadn't thought through what he would do after the attack. Maybe he assumed that the Lord would call down fire from heaven and destroy them and bring in his kingdom with Peter at his right hand, as as his right hand man. But Jesus had not come to destroy man's lives, but to save them. So when Peter saw them, saw Jesus let them bind him and take him away, he had a big problem. To save face, he had to follow Jesus. But now he's a marked man. So Peter and one referred to as the other disciple, who was doubtless John, the writer of the gospel, followed Jesus. Now it seems that John was known to the high priest. And that enabled him, that enabled John to get access to the court of the high priest. And Peter was left outside. So John uses his influence to get Peter in. But as he's coming in, a servant girl at the gate says, verse 17, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now, it isn't immediately evident why Peter felt that he had to say this. John was in the same position, and it must have been clear to the servant girl that John was one of, of Jesus' disciples, so it doesn't seem that there was an immediate threat to Peter for being one of Jesus' disciples. But there may well have been a threat of being identified as the one who had attempted to kill the servant of the high priest. So perhaps Peter's bad conscience eroded his courage. By the way, that's why having a good conscience is so important, especially in leaders. This is why Paul said to Timothy, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. When there there is a bad conscience, it makes it difficult 
makes us afraid to identify with Christ and stand for Christ when we most need to. It's hard to stand for Christ. It's hard to present Christ to others when we've been going around cutting off people's ears with our bad behavior, with our actions, and with our words. So Peter is unable to sustain the courage he exhibited in the garden, and perhaps he justifies this first denial as a necessary white lie to get to a place where he can deliver the Lord. I don't know. Maybe that was his thinking. We're not told. But now in the high priest's courtyard, Peter is way out on a limb with no plan because his plan was not God's plan and it had failed. And so why is he there other than perhaps to save faith? So there was nothing for, for Peter to do but wait. But while he is waiting, he became cold. And a fire beckoned him, and all he wanted was some comfort and some warmth. But to share their warmth and comfort, he had to look the part, and he didn't. And they noticed it, and they asked him about it, and he wasn't ready to give an answer. And this created the, the occasion for the second and the third denial. And as we see Peter sitting among the enemies of the Lord, trying to blend in and look like one of them, we can shake our heads and say, Peter, what are you doing But be careful, because don't you see yourself there as well? How often do we, in seeking to find escape from our inclement circumstances, seek amusement from things that require us for all practical purposes to deny our relationship with the Lord? How often do we seek to warm ourselves at the enemy's fires? So let's not be too hard on Peter while overlooking our own sins, which are no less grievous. And it's hard to miss the progression here. Rather than accepting the Lord's counsel and will, Peter pursues his own. And then he tries to stand in the courts of the ungodly. And ultimately he finds himself sitting at their fire. And it reminds us of the warning in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scorner, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So what was Peter's problem? He knew the Father, but he knew him imperfectly. And it is only in relationship with the Father and the Son that we can endure. But later... When dear Peter received the Holy Spirit, who continued the work of of revealing the Father to Peter, Peter lived courageously and ultimately went to death for the Lord in the power of that relationship. Well, we've talked about Judas, who did not know the Father. And we've talked about Peter, who knew the Father, albeit imperfectly. Now let's close by talking about our blessed Lord who met this trial in the dignity of one who lived in perfect intimacy with the Father. Jesus doesn't shrink from the encounter in the garden. He went forward and said, whom do you seek? He initiated the encounter. He did not run from it, but faced it in all the dignity of one fully in control and fully at peace and fully committed to accepting the cup that his Father had given him to drink. And then he identifies himself to them by the name I am, whereupon they drew back and fell to the ground. And there was only one reason they fell to the ground, and that was because he allowed for one brief moment the glory of his person to shine out. And they, a crowd of probably a hundred 
officials and Roman soldiers fall to the ground. But he allows puny man to bind his hands, the hands that at that very moment were holding the earth in perfect orbit around the sun and sustaining their every breath. He could have called 12 legions of angels. We don't need to be reminded that in Hezekiah's time, one angel wiped out 185,000 men at one time. But he lived and knew the Father intimately and willingly would drink the cup that the Father had given him to drink. He had not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And then before Annas, he refuses to expose his disciples to danger. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. They might deny him. They might flee and leave him alone. They might be unfaithful. He would not deny them. And in that mockery of a courtroom, he faithfully exposes the absence of witnesses and is unlawfully struck, but he does not revile them or lash out as the Apostle Paul later would do, but distinguishes himself as a moral superior with never a word that he must later retract. As it says in 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And all this because our Lord knew the Father intimately, lived always in perfect communion with the Father, and desired only ever to do his will. Now I want to ask you, what is necessary for us as a church to face the conflict that lies ahead of us? to face our own Kidron crossing, as it were, with the faithfulness, peace, and dignity that our Lord displayed. It is knowing the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. As a church, we have come through a time of testing. For many of us, it was the first time that we ever found ourselves on the wrong side of the law. The first time that we ever looked at a police officer as being there for any reason other than for our protection. Did we, through all the confusion and frustration and disorientation, sense the presence and the protection of the Almighty God? Did we, through it all, experience the joy of eternal, abundant life? Did we seek his glory above all else? Brothers and sisters, the Lord has graciously carried us through this trial, but it will not be the last one that we face. How will the next one find us? How will the next one find us? How can we prepare? By following the example of our Lord Jesus, who faced this confrontation with the perfect, perfect peace because he lived in perfect intimacy with the Father. So we've considered here Judas, who did not know the Father, Peter, who knew the Father imperfectly, and the Lord Jesus, who knew the Father intimately. And now it's time to ask the question, do you know the Father? Do you know the Father? And if you do, are you allowing the Spirit of God to reveal more and to bring you into the joy that flows from into the intimacy of that relation? It's eternal life. It's abundant life. I hope you see by now how terribly important it is for we too go into a dark night with enemies on every side. 
Do you know the Father? Not of the Father, but do you know him as your Father? Has the Lord Jesus brought you to the Father and said, this one is mine? Has the Father embraced you as his own and called you his child? He will not embrace you in your rebellion. We are not all God's children, as some would have us to believe. You know who the Father embraces as his own? His Son. And all those who belong to him. Those whose sins are covered with his blood. Those who have come in repentance, trusting only in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. These are the ones whom the Father embraces and calls his own and gives them eternal life, abundant life. Are you, like Judas, pretending to have a relationship? Do you draw near him with your words but place a higher value on money or friends or something else? I urge you, cast it down, cast it down, and run to him. Because you'll receive forgiveness and eternal life. But I suspect that most of us here identify with Peter. I know I do. We do know him, and we love him. We do know him, but do we know him as we should or as we could? Do you want to know him more? Do you, church? Do you want to know him more? Before you say you do, I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul says, because there is a cost. It will be something. The Apostle Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. It is possible to become ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ as we have in 2 Peter 1. Peter's bitter experience in this chapter shows that pride and self-will rob us of the joy of knowing him intimately and thereby rob us of the enjoyment of that abundant life. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, we are coming into a time where it will cost us dearly to acknowledge by our words and by our actions that we know him. And if Peter could fail, so can we. And the only thing that will preserve us is knowing him intimately, for this will change us. And how do we grow to know him intimately? Second Corinthians three eighteen says, And we, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory into another. We are changed by looking upon him. So look upon him. Look upon him in his word. Meditate upon him in prayer. Look upon him in our fellowship with one another and gaze upon him in the breaking of bread. And as we do, we will be changed. And we will see him in every circumstance of life. And we will be like the servant of Elisha who trembled with fear who was trembling with fear as he saw the enemies of the Lord surrounding the city. But then we will have our eyes open to see that the mountains are filled with chariots of fire and that there is nothing that can cause us to fear. Before we come to the Lord's table, I just want to pray. God, our Father...
at the conclusion of this sermon. We want to know you more. And we just want to have you search our hearts this morning. As we say with the hymn writer, Have I an object, Lord, below, which would divide my heart with thee? Which would divert its even flow in answer to thy constancy? Oh, teach me quickly to return and cause my heart afresh to burn. Oh, Lord, we pray that our hearts would burn as we hear you speak to us those ancient words and that you would now make yourself known to us as you did to those two discouraged disciples make known as you made yourself known to them in the breaking of bread. And now make yourself, Lord, known to us and your presence with us. Make that known to us as well in the breaking of bread. For we ask this, our Father, in the worthy name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's come to the Lord's table.